Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. Joining you is myself, John Cribbs, and Christopher Funderberg. Hi, John. Hello, Chris. And today we have uh, guest Stephen Scheel, filmmaker, writer, co-curator of the uh, Mayhem Film Festival at Broadway in Nottingham. Uh, the next festival is coming up on October. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Can you tell us just a little bit about uh, the Mayhem Film Festival? What kind of uh, films do you guys show? Mayhem's been running, this will be our 15th edition this year, and we are a horror, sci-fi, and cult film festival. So we try and show basically the best in mainly kind of independent horror, sci-fi, cult cinema from around the world. Uh, It's previews, premieres, and kind of archive uh, films, along with occasionally some sort of special events like live soundtracks, or uh, we've done a couple of live stage readings of... uh, unfilmed hammer scripts that have gone down oh cool yeah <laughs> so a couple of years ago we did zeppelin versus pterodactyls which was a famous unmade hammer movie that was just only ever existed as a poster and then we found a kind of outline for it so i wrote whoa that's really awesome yeah <laughs> did it did it le- did it live up to the promise of zeppelins versus pterodactyls or was it better off, better off as a poster yeah. <laughs> I don't think anything can live up to <laughs> the title of the poster and I, I did with the script have to work a little bit hard to get more Zeppelin versus Pterodactyl action into it <laughs> than it was actually in the in the outline but yeah it's good it's like a kind of uh, lost world kind of uh, island at the top of the world land that time forgot kind of story you know Zeppelins aliens uh, prehistoric lands dinosaurs yeah like if you've seen any of those kind of films or read any of those books you you kind of know where you are with it it's it's yeah right and it's right in that ballpark which is a good ballpark to be in running that kind of festival what i'm sure you're tired of getting asked this question what is like what is what are some of the unseen or underseen horror uh sort of films the gems that people might be on the lookout for that haven't that you've seen that haven't necessarily broken through in the way you'd like for them to? Uh, oh, gosh, that's a really hard question. Cause I, mean, I know. I hate asking it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, every year we, uh, you know, we, we try and track down uh, these, you know, these new films. And we, you know, we just about, I mean, next week with myself and the other co-curator, Chris, we're going to Cannes. And that begins our kind of uh, task of, like, trying to track down the films for this year. But um, uh, there was a film that was not a... A horror film but it was an, uh, a low budget action movie that we screened last year called Night Shooters it was made by a, a Welsh guy called Mark Price and mm-hmm. he made a zombie film called Colin which he made for £50 I think about 10 years ago that, that <laughs> did, uh, did really well and Night Shooters is this fantastic uh, yeah, low budget action movie set in a, an abandoned skyscraper and it went down so well at the festival. It was, uh, we had a round of applause in the middle of the film. We had people cheering at the end. It was, it was just incredible. That, that was great. And uh, another film, which I, th- I think is, is not really kind of undersold because you, you guys have probably heard of it. But there's Wait, I've heard, of, I've heard of Night Shooters. And I've only heard of this because Outlaw Vern reviewed it recently. Ah, yeah, he may have done. Yeah, 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 that's where. I, and I was trying to think of it. I was the name sounded really, very familiar, and so I pulled up stills from it just now and was like, "Oh, I've absolutely heard of that." So, sorry, yeah. that, that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> from yeah, what I heard. One, the other one was One Cut of the Dead, 
which uh, was probably one of the best experiences I've had at the festival in terms of just audience reaction to a film. And it's uh, essentially, it's a really hard film to sell because you, you need to go into it knowing as little as possible about it really. But the, the basic premise, the initial premise of it is that it's a one take 37 minute long zombie movie. Yeah. Then it becomes something else. <laughs> but you can't really talk about what it becomes and how it does that without kind of spoiling it. But it's got the best third act of any film that I've seen in, in like the past 10 years. It is, it's, it's such a crowd pleaser. And if you can get to see it and especially see it with an audience, it, it, it just, you know, it's, it's kind of life affirming. It's, it's fantastic. Great. It's great that you guys don't just do the UK, uh, local UK films, but all get films internationally from all over the place. That's really cool. I think last year we had films from five continents, <laughs> which was the most we've ever had, just because, yeah, we, we and, and our audience, we've got a great audience and they're really yeah. into uh, to anything. I mean, horror audiences, I think, because they, you know, they want to see new stuff and they don't care about the budget and they don't care whether there are any stars in it and they don't care necessarily what the filmmakers made before. They just want to discover stuff. So that really helps yeah. us in terms of programming. It means that we can go out and find stuff from all over the place and, and put it on and they and they will go, Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. Let's go. You know, last year one of the big hits was a a film called The White Reindeer, which was this film from this archive film from uh, Lapland made in nineteen fifty two, which is uh, about a uh, a vampiric were reindeer. <laughs> And it's uh, again, that was that, that was amazing, and our audience loved it. You know, <laughs> so you can play stuff like that. And then we played uh, Puppet Master, the Litlist Reich, which is yeah. the most over the top, gory kind of like bad taste kind of thing. Yeah, you can play them almost like back to back at the festival, and the audience will go for it. Yeah, my experience on social media has been that the horror film people are the sort of nicest and most educated. You know, it's like a good, that audience is a very good intersection of people who both know what they're talking about and aren't dicks about it, you know? Absolutely, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic atmosphere at the festival, it honestly is, and I think people from the outside probably have a weird kind of idea of, of, of what a horror film festival would be like. And yeah. you know, imagine that it's just all these people kind of wallowing in gore and it's not, it's a really, really good open friendly atmosphere. And, and, you know, uh, and they are the nicest people and horror filmmakers are the nicest uh, uh, people as well. And I always say that, that I think with horror filmmakers, they get it all out. Do you mean everything, everything, yeah. Every kind of bad thought is out there on the screen. It's not kept within. It's it, it's the people who make romantic comedies you've got to watch out for because they're keeping all that stuff inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. I, I, if I ever find myself in the UK again in the fall, I really hope I get to come to the festival sometime. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounds great. How Can I ask one more question? How big is your slate? How many films do you show? Uh, I think last year, we run over four days. So I think last year was seven, 17 or 18, I think. Oh, that's great. That's a great, great slate for that, that length of a festival too. That, uh, that sounds really fun. Cool, yeah. If you're ever in Nottingham in October, then come along. Perfect. Absolutely, we'd love to. Yeah, we're going to um, take you up on that offer when you least expect it. We're just going to be there <laughs> suddenly. We heard we were invited. <laughs> You'll be welcome. Um, but the other thing that, uh, Stephen, that you do is you have a fantastic Tumblr feed called Everything Secondhand. Uh, 
which fuels your occupation with uh, excellent books uh, book and book covers. Uh, and that's how we came to today's selection that we're going to be talking about, which I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce since it was one that you, uh, you came up with. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the book I've chosen today is uh, called Deep is the Pit, and it's by a writer called H. Werner Dixon, which is uh, Harry Werner Dixon. And the reason I wanted to choose it, I, over the past couple of years, I've read a lot of uh, vintage crime novels. It's kind of been my thing. I, you know, to, to, I've bought a lot, as you can see. <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter or on the Tumblr, I, you know, I buy a lot of books and I've read, you know, and I read a lot of the, the crime, uh, vintage crime fiction. And this was one guy who I'd never heard of before, could find barely anything online about him, and, uh, and then read his books. I've read, I think, seven or eight books now, and he's great. He's a really, you know, fantastically interesting writer. He writes, you know, he, he's, he's got a, a particular kind of story that he likes to tell and has probably told kind of over and over again, but always with a kind of interesting kind of bent to it. And, and so I wanted to choose him because I thought, you know, he's somebody who, you know, I don't know anybody else who's read any, read him. You know I mean? That's, I think, yeah, I had never I heard of him before this. Yeah. And, and you're right, going to look him up online, there's nothing about him. I was trying to find what year this book was originally published and had to put effort into it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really weird because there's, there's not even, I think that there's no English Wikipedia page for him. I think there's this really short French Wikipedia page, which I found with a lot of these kind of, uh, kind of uh, pulpy, pulp kind of crime writers from the 40s and 50s. If there's not an English page, there'll be a French page because obviously the French yeah. love their time. You know. But even that's only really short and there's hardly any kind of information about him. So I thought he, you know, but, but the books, like I say, are, are really interesting and, and not your typical pulp crime novel from the 50s, even though, you know, the covers when you see them, you know, may sort of present as such. They're not that kind of typical in terms of, in, in terms of the stories that they tell. Yeah. Um, before we, John, before we dive into the, the book itself and really dig into the book, one thing uh, we do on this show is uh, we pair every selection, every book with an aperitif and a digestif. We recommend uh, each one of us and our, our guests will recommend uh, something, another artwork, another book, another film, whatever they feel like, an album if they decided to pair with this book uh, uh, to sort of wet your appetite, get you on the right wavelength, put you in the right mindset for this book uh, to lead you into it. And then when we're done, we give a dessert selection afterwards. Uh, something that if you like this book or didn't like it or were intrigued that you might want to go to next after you're done with it. Um, and so is there, John, is there any reason we shouldn't go into those now? No, let's do it. <laughs> Steven, is there any reason we shouldn't go into these now? Not that I can see, no. Okay. Would you, John, I'll, John, you can go first and then I'll let Stephen go, go last. Our guest go last. Sound good? Sure. Absolutely. I'll go first. Uh, the one I've chosen is very, very loosely connected. Uh, it's really just, I picked it because it's my favorite book I've ever read set in San Francisco, which is where Deep as the Pit is set as well. Uh, it's Our Lady of Darkness by Fritz Lieber uh, from 1977. Oh, um, just a really in terms of setting just an amazing use of the city and, and, and weaving these themes and these characters into, you know, Bay, the Bay area and Corona Heights, the Sutro TV tower, the Transamerica pyramid, 
uh, Mount Diablo, just all the great San Francisco sites. I read this in college and was just so taken in by the use of San Francisco in this book. I actually wanted to move to San Francisco for a while and then I visited and changed my mind. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, uh, still, uh, Lieber just, you know, it's a very autobiographical book. Um, but he really uses the city, uh, as the center of like a, uh, Maleficent force and specifically this building on Geary Street, which is the building where Lieber was actually living when he wrote this book. Uh, and he just weaves this tale of, you know, dark magic and science and occultism uh, and uses the city as a haunting entity entity within itself. Uh, so I think just for, in terms of like a really interesting book uh, set in San Francisco, you can't do better than that. Wow. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Um, I will give you my selection, which is a crime novel from 1931, so predating Deep as the Pit by a couple decades. It is Malice Aforethought, the story of a commonplace crime by uh, Francis Hills, who was the uh, pseudonym of Anthony Berkeley, Anthony Berkeley Cox, he's also known as. And it is a book that is about a um, doctor in an unhappy marriage who decides to kill his wife. And it's sort of a story like Deep as the Pit about a man caught between two women. He wants to kill his wife because he has his eyes on a, uh, a younger woman, right? A uh, young, beautiful woman that he'd like to leave his life for. And he can't figure out how to get a divorce. So he decides he's going to um, essentially gaslight his, his wife into suicide. But the only person who's on to him is this young woman he's trying to marry. So it's a guy caught between sort of this respectable life and this other woman who's like completely onto his shit, which is sort of the setup for um, Deep as the Pit in some ways that it's about a person caught between respectability and lust and this person who's putting on all these facades and the only, and there's one woman who sort of sees through it, through it all. And, um, I also would recommend it as, as sort of the, the appetizer book to just lead you into where detective stories were coming from, particularly detective stories that were not mysteries and like, uh, Deep as the Pit, there, there's no mystery. Deep as the Pit opens with the big bank robbery being over, right? Like that's one of the hooks of the pit is it's a heist novel where the heist has already gone off without a hitch at the start. And same thing with Malice of Forethought where you, there's no mystery. You know who the murderer is in the very first sentence of the book. And um, I just think it's a, a good and interesting comparison to show where the the history of the, the genre had been and where it's going to and sort of ending up with Deep as the Pit. And then thematically, they seemed, just something about seemed, them seemed similar to me, about, about a, a misogynist who's deeply in denial about the meaning of his misogyny, too. So... That sounds great. I've never heard of that one. I was trying to think of a good post-crime story, you know, a, um, a story that takes place after the big crime. And all I could think of was Brett Ratner's film, After the Sunset, which is actually, su- <laughs> it's actually a surprisingly good movie. It's his best movie for sure. Yeah, but uh, doesn't, all the doesn't really have much to do. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have much to do, though, with uh, Deep is the Pit at all. Yeah. I would have been annoyed. Although for my dessert selection, you're going to be like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> 
I basically picked after the sunset for my dessert pick. Stephen, shall Thanks we? Thanks for the warning. Oh. <laughs> Hi, yeah. Um, the, for my choice, again, I went with something that I thought thematically would, would lead into uh, Deepest Pit. And it's a book by a writer who, again, I've only really got into in the past couple of years, who is uh, Elizabeth Sanksay Holding. Uh, and it's a book called The Virgin Huntress. Oh, that's a great name for a book for the start. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's got a fantastic cover. I, the, the, the edition that I've got is uh, one of those giant um, ace doubles. Do you know the double books where there's, there's yeah, those where there's, there's two novels and you and they're kind of back to back and you, you turn it over when you finish one and then read the other one. Yeah, the like flip cover where there's one cover on one side and then you turn it over for the other, right? Absolutely, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. Um, and this is a story about uh, another story about a young man who's got the fantastic name of uh, Montford Duchesne, who <laughs> <laughs> is this young guy who's basically stuck in a dead end job, and he's uh, he's got a girlfriend who really wants to marry him, and he's not that interested in her, and he's this kind of guy who's uh, a, a, a bit of a dreamer, a bit kind of ambitious. He you know he he wants more in life, and then one day he happens, I think. Uh, a, a, a big posh car drives past the street that um, he's cycling down, and uh, and this woman asks for directions, and, it's, and it turns out to be this, this, this very kind of a rich widow who takes a liking to him. He offers to like, you know, if I get in the car, I'll, t- I'll tell you how to get to this place. And they start talking, and she takes a liking to him because he, I think, he reminds her of her former husband. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, they end up kind of going back to a hotel where she's staying, and they kind of uh, get drunk together, and then he ends up. She ends up saying, you know, you can stay in the, in the suite, there's a spare room. And so he basically becomes this uh, paid companion to her. And for him, he sees a way like, out of this life that he had, this, this kind of like, uh, dull life that he had, into this world of high society. Um, but the woman's niece is uh, suspicious of this guy because, you know, they've literally picked him up off the street. So she starts investigating his background because this... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this widow is looking to kind of make him, you know, offer him a, a you know, a, a week, a monthly kind of stipend to, to live on and to kind of move into this kind of uh, hotel suite. But this guy, Monty, has uh, done something in his past that he knows if it's uncovered will screw him up. So he has to kind of put in the effort to, to, to try and make sure that the, the niece and the people working for the niece don't track down what it is that he's done. And you don't find out what he's done until quite kind of actually what quite late on in the book and it is quite horrible um but uh elizabeth thanks holding is great because she's she was writing from like the you know the 20s to the 50s so she spans this kind of you know golden age of detective fiction up to the kind, yeah. of, kind of age uh but she she was really great at, at the kind of psychological novel crime novel that that you know margaret miller or patricia highsmith would be writing kind of later on yeah she, real a real kind of forerunner of that and this is a really good example of something like that it's only i think it's only like 100 pages long so it felt like it's it's, it's you know you can read it in an afternoon so it felt like in, in that way thematically and just as a kind of like you say aperitif to, to reading deep as the pit which is a kind of heftier book this felt like it, it would be a good fit very nice i know it's always good to hear about another great uh, female crime writer i'm always on the lookout for um those i haven't heard of so and i like the connection too between the names monty and marty from yeah. uh, Deep is the Pit. She, she's um, holding. She, she wrote her, her most famous books, uh, The Blank Wall, which was made into uh, Ophel's film, The Reckless Moment. Uh, oh. oh, wow. 
yeah, I yeah. did not realize that was the source. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then it was made in, again in the, the deep end with Tilda Swinton. I think that was the, the, the second remake in 2001. Was, yes. Yeah. And I, you know, it's been so long since I've seen the deep end. I probably saw that. I, I bet I had not even heard of Olfels at that point in my life. I think I saw the deep end when I was like 17. Isn't that about when it came out, John? Yep, sounds about right. Interesting. But that's a very good selection. And what's, what's the author's name again? Because I am absolutely not familiar with her. Right, it's uh, Elizabeth with an S instead of a Z. Uh, Sanxay, S-A-N-X-A-Y, Holding. Okay. So, Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Great aperitif. Yeah, she, she's, she's absolutely great. I wholeheartedly recommend her. And is she one you can just pick up anything or do, are there, or do, should you start with like those highlights that you've listed? Uh, the, the first one that I read and is really good is The Innocent Mrs. Duff. Um, but, That's another great title. Yeah. These titles, I'm 100% sold just on the titles. That's all it takes with me. I, I think she's someone who you can pretty much pick up anything and it will be, be worth your while. Cool. Very cool. So let's de- let's dig let's go deep into the pit here, gentlemen. Um, just go over real quick. This is a this is a story of Marty Lee, who is a um, a roaming hotel employee. He's worked in several hotels across the country, who has managed to successfully moonlight as the most notorious bank robber in the country. Uh, just sort of on the side, he's kind of used uh, his. Uh, his, his frequent travel and his uh, different occupations as a mask to uh, to literally disguise himself to you know give himself red hair and change his facial appearance and put on a false mustache and um, become the engineer of all of these uh, very complicated and successful bank robberies and so he's amassed a small fortune as and the he's decided Red Martin as Red Martin, the, the uh, uh, great mastermind of all these um, heists. So he has now decided that the end game for him is to uh, ditch the, the Red Martin persona entirely and become Marty Lee, hotel entrepreneur. He decides he wants to buy this old uh, San Francisco hotel that was once, you know, as, as far past his prime and kind of um, use his special touches, his operational skill to bring it back to its old glory and make it work and is very successful at doing this. And there are, of course, uh, factors from his past that come to haunt him and threaten his new, uh, his new enterprise. At the same time, he's very much getting in his own way as he's not able to completely ditch this violent criminal persona that is you know within him throughout the whole thing as he marries into high society and rises among the ranks um he's just going to inevitably fall um so i guess the first question guys is just what do we think of this marty lee character let me say to you this this the plot it's basically about this guy caught between two women though he marries the daughter or the niece of the standard fortune the standards are the ones who own the hotel but from his past his last girlfriend when he's red martin is a showgirl and she doesn't leave town the way she's supposed to and keeps hanging around in his life and it's really the story of him trying to figure out what to do between these two women, which one he wants to be with, if he has to kill either of them, all of these sort of uh, uh, problems. Well, it's uh, interesting you read it like that. I did, because he 
has such an, uh, you know, has this lack of emotion and he, this idea that he's trying to convince himself that he's not in love with either of these women. I guess I didn't really see it as being torn between them. It seems like Dottie, the showgirl who he had hooked up with his Red Martin on his last heist and then recognizes him uh, after he's turned into Marty Lee, um, is really just kind of like a thorn in his side. Is someone Perhaps that he, maybe caught between them is a better caught between better them. Sure. Caught to use another uh, uh, Ophel's word. There, call him caught between them. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that he ever feels drawn towards uh, Dottie in any way that isn't sexual. You know, I mean, like she's but does his he kind feel of woman because she towards, can towards uh, what's the niece's name? I just lost her name. It's Karen. Karen. Does he ever feel drawn towards Karen in any way that isn't fundamentally sexual? I think. I think, what re- I think. I think as as the book goes on, because he he, you know, he wants to possess her and, and the only way that he's used to doing that is through sex and when she won't give in to him he and the fact that she won't and the fact that she rejects him yeah. I think really screws him up you know and he's not used to that he's used to and I think it's, it's interesting because I don't think he's, he's caught so much between the two women in in terms of a romantic sense it's more the yeah. sense that that this whole character is caught between these two worlds and these two lives this kind of yeah. you know the, the, the life of crime which is where you know Dottie Kimball, who's the who's the singer, came from, you know, and then this 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 high life that he wants to get into, and he's caught between the two of them, and and you know Dottie sees him and thinks I'm like you, you know I'm you know I came from the same place you did, I can get to the same place as you you you're getting to, and he doesn't see it like that. He sees her still down below, and he's aspiring to be like with the rich people, but he will never get there. He doesn't have their class, and he can't, you know, I. I he he can't disguise himself enough to become part of that high life. Yeah. yeah. He has this incredible indignance about the fact that he'll never actually belong to this elite society so that he kind of looks down on them simply based on the fact that he doesn't belong. But you're right. I, I think the two women definitely symbolize those two different sides of himself. The one he's trying to get away from, but can't help going back to. And uh, the one that he'll never actually attain as much as he can, you know, uh, woo Karen and have her be attracted to his like kind of animalistic nature and his yeah. kind of unpredictable personality. She's just something that he's ne- who's never going to be, you know, they're never going to be on the same uh, level in any way. Yeah. But I think there's, there's a sense that, that, that that could have happened. I think she says in the book that, you know, if he, if he'd played things differently, you know, they, cause they get married and, and, you know, it's only after they're married that, that things kind of deteriorate. But it's also, she's sort of saying un, in a way that is not unfair to him, but if you had been anyone other than who you truly are, to me, it's a book that's about him being caught between his idealized self, like the person he thinks he could be, and his truer self, the world he comes from, the kind of person he is, the kind of women that are attracted to him, the kind of women that he has chemistry with. Uh, and being torn between those two things. Like you say, he's never going to be able to be part of that aristocracy. It's just not in him. He's not capable of it. And her saying, if you had played it differently, is in some ways saying, if you were somebody other than who you are, maybe it could have worked. That's one of the things is I think that this book is, um, is a very, it's not quite a psychological crime novel. It doesn't quite belong to the Patricia Highsmith category, right? But it definitely uh, faints that way. It's sort of a nice combination of like true hard-boiled workman 
writing and the psychological crime novels that that were really coming to the the fore in that same era. I think it's an interesting combination of the two. Would you say that's fair or or do you think my interpretation is way off and that I should listen to experts and stop speaking? <laughs> uh, no, I think I think I think it's fair enough. I don't think it is uh, a deeply kind of psychological novel because he's not he's not a deep character. He's quite a simple character and I think you know it, it's interesting because uh, on on the first page, hang on, I've got the book here. On the first page is this really interesting uh, description that kind of it, it, it's got like a twenty line paragraph where it just talks about you know, and he's always good at openings. Uh, Dixon, he's great, but at the end of that paragraph, it says uh, he was the product of his dreams and his desires and all he had seen and felt and all that had happened to him and the women he had had and the men he had known and what he wanted out of life and his own manner of achieving it. It was a unit, a total sum, the smoothly polished end result of a personal production chain. He was complete. Yeah, and that idea that 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 he at the beginning of the book just sees himself as like, this is I know who I am. I know entirely who I am. And then by the end of the book, you know, he doesn't know who he is. You know, he's caught between these two things. Yeah, he's constantly like questioning what his emotions even are at the end of the book, where he's like, Am I feeling love? What is my feeling right now yeah. towards the end? And, and and at the beginning, I mean, I, I I was trying to describe this book to somebody else the other day, and I and I said it's as though uh, Donald Westlake's Parker was also the Great Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of Parker with this too. Yeah, because uh, at the beginning he does this heist, and you're right, and, he, and it's a very kind of like you know Parker-like heist where you know he's you know he does it absolutely perfectly. He's kind of ruthless. They get away with it, and then. Some schmuck that he's gone on a job with yeah. has screwed up and left a piece of evidence behind. He's him. saddled with some fuck ups who drive the problems. But that's not his problem because he did his part and he's got his money and, and, and he's out of there. But at the end, the key the key point at the end is that he completely fucks up in 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 his one task that he's got to do to save himself by making an absolutely fundamental mistake. You know. It, it, and, and it's just the difference between where he is at the beginning, this absolute certainty of who he is. He, you know, I am complete with how he is at the end, where he can't even perform this kind of really, you know, basic task that he would have just done instinctively, you know, uh, a year earlier. It's, it's really interesting because it, it has really, the whole uh, development of the story has really played with his sense of self. Yeah, but do you think he actually is a complete, unit like it says or i read the character more as somebody who only very dimly understands his own motivations for why he's doing things and i sort of ended up reading it you know to use a bad word that way metatextually where i felt like dixon and wanted expected the reader to have a different relationship to what this guy was saying and doing even in third person or authorial voice even in that commentary than what we as a reader were seeing with him in some ways, because he is so soft on Dottie and he should kill her at the start. But to me that read like he doesn't understand his emotions towards her. He doesn't understand why he's letting her off and that it's, he has, he's more compelled to her than he thinks, I think, or is that, or do you guys disagree? I agree. No, I, I, I think that's right. I think that he, he uh, does not have self-awareness at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. I think you're right. He yeah. You know, when he says he was complete, that is how he sees himself. But it's not. 
you know, that's how he has created himself. That's a, the, the, the character that, that, that he has built for himself. And once these other, other elements start coming in, these other people start coming into it, then, you know, he doesn't know how to deal with it. He doesn't know how to deal with complex emotions. He's just you know, this very kind of simple, he's created this very, very simple kind of man. What I love about <clears throat> what I love about the character is that he uses this genius for organizing and planning that makes him such a great bank robber to, you know, when he moves it to a legitimate enterprise, you know, that's why he becomes so successful automatically because he just has that kind of mind, but that as he gets further into success, like legitimate success within the world and being accepted by uh, high society, he loses that criminal element. So his very careful organizing and planning and, you know, everything that made him so great as Red Martin slowly dissipates so that by the end he can't even remember to bring his gun to the, to the hit that he has to do. Yeah. Um, that, you know, the characters throughout uh, are saying, you know, you've lost your edge. You're not as tough as you were. You know, he almost becomes impotent as, you know, this criminal mastermind to the point that he's forgotten who he is and he can't go back to Red Martin because he is gone so so deep into the society. And I like how you compared it to Gatsby. I had that feeling too, where it's sort of like a reverse Gatsby where Gatsby kind of became a criminal bootlegger in order to come into the this society, you know, to be accepted by the elite. Whereas with Marty, it almost happens by accident. You know, he seems to have his eyes set on making this hotel great again. And then he just sort of ends up with the standards and, and with Karen that sort of happens just as a result of that. Okay. So Steve, I wanted to ask though, um, because I know you've been doing some um, biographical research on Dixon. Um, he's kind of interesting in that he was, you know, writing in a California crime writer around the, uh, you know, following Chandler and, and James Kane and all those guys and writing around the same time as Ross McDonald. Um, so what, what kind of stuff did you learn about him in your research? Well, well, yeah, I had this thing where, you know, like you, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything online about, uh, about Dixon. And, uh, and so I, I started investigating. I started kind of, you know, trying to find if there, if there was any kind of other biographical information. And eventually I, I came across uh, his daughter, Pam Dixon, who still lives in uh, California. She's an artist. Mm-hmm. An artist. Um, and I found an email for, for, for her. And I thought, I, you know, I'll give it a try. I'll see, <laughs> I'll see if uh, she's willing to talk about her father and if she's got any information. So I emailed her a few weeks ago and she got back to me and we uh, exchanged emails for, for a couple of weeks. And then she very kindly agreed to talk to me for about an hour uh, over, over FaceTime uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and it was great. She's very happy to talk about her father. Um, she, uh, again is is you know sad that there's not more about him because uh, you know she's she's very proud of him and very proud of his works um and yeah she i mean what's quite interesting is 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 pam uh, dixon was was talking about how uh, harry didn't actually see himself as a crime writer you know he, he he never really acknowledged himself as a crime writer even though he was writing these kind of uh, you know very kind of pulp presenting uh, gold medal paperbacks yeah. you know actually he started out um you know writing in the 1920s um with a kind of jazz age kind of fitzgerald like novel um, yeah. and then it was only and then for for you know 
I think about 10 years, he was writing short stories for all the, the major kind of uh, literary magazines. I think he wrote like 50 or 60 stories for all these kind of literary magazines that had them published and was very famous for, for, for those kind of things that weren't crime stories. They were proper, yeah. not proper, that's the wrong word to say, but generally they were literary stories. Yeah. Um, that is one of the things that's very surprising about this novel is I got about halfway through and thought, holy shit, this is really about running a hotel. This is really a book about being a hotelier, not a bank robber, and it doesn't seem like it's going back. Yeah, but, absolutely. And, and what's what's interesting is that, uh, I mean, the, the story of how he, after the war, um, you know, Harry wanted to continue writing these kind of uh, literary stories and novels, um, but the, the market had kind of bottomed out, and it was all kind of photojournalism that, that, that was kind of getting into the magazines. And so he got this offer from Gold Medal to, you know, to, to sign a contract to write the, these books. Um, and signed up to it with, I think the, the, the deal was that um, he, he was pro- promised that, that after the, once the first run had sold out, you know, I think it was a like, standard contract, but once the first run had sold out, they, the writers would get a percentage on whatever kind of second or third printing, you know. Yeah. But obviously gold medal uh, <laughs> put out a massive first run. <laughs> You know, so there would never need to be a second or third run. So essentially kind of, you know, and, and Pam talks about Harry not being a good businessman and, and, and that, yeah, so essentially he was, you know, he was, he was doing all this work and not necessarily seeing uh, the full kind of, uh, you know, results of his labor. But I think within, you know, throughout the fifties, he wrote something like 10 novels, you know, for in, in like five or six years, he was really kind of going for it. And, and a lot of them, uh, I, I, I've read like eight of them and, at least five have this very similar kind of like Gatsby-like kind of setup where you've got a young, uh, tough, ruthless, amoral, good-looking man who comes from the wrong side of the tracks but can present himself well enough to be able to mingle with high society and find an angle to work his way into becoming part of high society and then something either in his past or because of his amorality and ruthlessness trips him up and causes, you know, causes his downfall, you know, and that's, you know, the, the, there's a few books that, you know, let's say, you know, four or five books that are like that, you know, all different kind of scenarios, um, but, but have that central kind of, um, that central figure. Um, and, and I found that really interesting when I asked Pam about it, she said that these, you know, they, they lived all around kind of uh, California and, you know, uh, I think, you know, when they lived in Carmel, that these were guys that Harry had known who were kind of hanging around there, who were kind of, you know, guys who come back from, from the war. And as she said, like, didn't want to work, you know, they, they, <laughs> you know, they, they, I think that the idea was that they, they, they wanted success and they wanted money and they wanted something, but they didn't want to hang around for it. They didn't want to work for it. They just wanted it. You know, and I think that idea of drive and ambition and just wanting something and wanting to take a shortcut is one of those things that, that is, is, kind of runs through these Dixon characters um which is quite ironic because like you said with Deep is the Pit you know Marty spends a, a lot of time working do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. for, for, a, for a criminal for a guy who's like you know robbing banks and you know at the beginning and, and somebody who's supposedly taking the, the easy route he does you know he does a lot of work of building up his hotel business and going to meetings and you know, it, there, there's a lot of that, and there isn't actually in, in, in a lot of the books. You know, these these business meetings where he kind of comes in and this, because of his ruthlessness and his his you know his yeah his, his his criminal kind of mind in a way is is able to go in there and, and kind of tough it out with these business people. And I, in a way, I kind of like the way that that 
that that those uh, parallels are drawn. The idea that his his criminal mind is what allows him to get on and to succeed in business in you know the the world of business and the world of of great wealth. Yeah, I agree. I love that you know you get so invested in, you know, all the things that he's doing to build up this empire and how he's socially climbing so quickly that you kind of forget, Oh yeah. He's also a criminal and a murderer, you know, who, um, who's using those same tactics towards this. But it seems too, that in all the, um, in the Dixon books you're talking about with the, um, the social climber, there's always a woman who he kind of becomes his uh, gateway to this, uh, this high society. And I think Chris was talking about, uh, how this character has to kind of come to terms with his own misogyny. Uh, Chris, do you have something else to say about that? Uh, do I have something else to say about that? I don't know. I mean, this is an interesting book. One of the things I like about it is that a lot of books from that era, it's funny when you were talking about, he wrote like the 10 novels in like the fifties, we had just been talking uh, about Jim Thompson and who had the same sort of creative explosion in almost the exact same time frame. Yeah. Um, a lot of the books from that era, you find yourself saying, is this a book uh, that's full of misogyny or has picked misogyny as a theme? This is one of the few books I feel very confident in saying it's a thematic interest to him. That this is that to Dixon, he's aware of this character's anger towards women, specifically societally class-directed anger, and women as the embodiment as a sort of, you know, almost like Joseph Cotton in Shadow of a Doubt, you know, like as, as like these soft princessy women as the as the physical embodiment of like the american aristocracy right and it's not just so much that he hates karen he hates every woman like that you know who's beautiful and drives a a rolls royce or whatever fancy car it is i forget i don't know anything about cars anyway um and and all of that and dixon really seems uh aware and shrewd in a way that even somebody like Jim Thompson, I think, is frequently talking about out both sides of his mouth about that stuff, where I think Jim Thompson does have misogyny as a theme, but he also plays to that audience's, you know, worst impulses sometimes. Like, his books get really ugly in that it's trying to have sort of an electrified reaction to this. I don't think Dixon ever plays those games where he's trying to bait his audience towards hating these women the way Marty does. I really don't. I think he's very careful to keep that stuff at arm's length to acknowledge it in the character and critique it, you know? And that's one of the things that's sort of most exciting to me about this book is not having that question loom over it. You know what I mean? That it's, that I think that it's like, he's very, he's almost like in those moments, like, uh, like clinical, you know, or clinician or something where he's, he's very good at diagnosing the anger of those emotions and the source of those emotions and the complexity of those emotions and how easily they wash away the moment he feels a little accepted, you know, like he just, he's so quick to drop all that stuff. The moment Karen is on his arm, you know, and I think that that's, I think it's fascinating. I think it's perspective. And I wouldn't have thought 
the great Gatsby with this, just because that's not how my mind works. But you bringing it up, it's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's talking about class in a very uh, self-aware way. It's, it's a theme, not an accident with him. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely right about, um, I think Dixon's uh, approach, you know, Dixon talks about masculinity. You know, yeah. He, he talks about men. And he talks about this this ruthlessness and this drive and this kind of virility and you know and he's always talking about you know how how strong uh, you know he is, but um, he but these characters aren't self aware and like I said they they may think of themselves at the beginning as being complete and strong and invulnerable but they are not and you know the the you're absolutely right that I don't think it has that the the, the sex scenes have that kind of ugliness. Yeah. yeah, that you get with you know sometimes in in someone like Thompson. Yeah, I think you you don't feel that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, or or Hitchcock, there aren't like hate scenes in this yeah. where it's like wallowing in hate. You know, it's just not a book that does that. No, and and even with somebody like 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 Dottie, who you know he just uses essentially for for sex. Yeah, I I, I like the way that she is presented as being like a parallel to him that she is presented. Yeah. It's basically wanting to do the same thing that he's doing and, and, and seeing no reason why she shouldn't. Yeah, yeah she's a classic femme fatale, but she's so sympathetic, it, it feels insane to apply that word to her. You know what I mean? Yeah, you yeah. understand her motivations because you can see it in him. And, and it's fair enough. You think, oh, yeah, he's doing it. Why can't she do it? Yeah. Because that, you know, they're both from, from the same kind of background and they're both hustlers. That's the thing. Yeah. They're trying to hustle their way into it. But I think, yeah, again, this theme of, of, of kind of wealth and class is really kind of interesting. And, and it, it's interesting that, you know, you, you start off with, with Marty in a mask, you know, putting on this mask to become Red Martin, to become this kind of uh, bank robber. And you end up with him in the same disguise as well. But, but the fact that, you know, throughout the book, he's, he's put on this other disguise to be this kind of like, you know, wealthy, mysterious businessman who can afford to buy into the hotel business. You know, it's still a mask. It's still not natural. And I think this, this kind of hatred for, for the rich, for somebody like Karen when he first sees her, is the fact that it's not a mask to her. This is natural. This is... This is yeah effortless this is just who these people are and he can never be that yeah and that's why i use the aristocracy it's like the people born into it and the people born out of it you yeah. know yeah american aristocracy john what are your thoughts on on this subject as someone john who really hates women how did you know well it's funny because when it opens with the bank robbery and you're kind of looking at it as more of a crime novel at that point mm-hmm your immediate kind of reaction to Dottie is, wow, that was a big fuck up on his part to hook up with her. I mean, Jesus, she really blows up his spot quite a bit in this book. Uh, seems like everything would have gone great except for her until you realize, you know, more that you learn about Marty's character that it's him messing it up. You know, he it's his decisions and his inability to, you know, get away from this animal drive within himself, you know, to... Uh, to do, to do what he needs to do to succeed that uh, Dottie is actually a problem that he could have taken care of um, and wouldn't have even existed. And like Steve was saying, I think that, you know, Dottie is, you know, a, you can't blame her for wanting to do the same thing and rise socially the same way he is and take advantage of her position. Um, but you're thinking, man, Slim Page really did not teach him as well as he should. 
Joe, what do you think of the book? It's interesting, too, because, you know, Stephen brought up how much the book talks about masculinity and specifically weakness and softness, right? How there are men who are constantly identified in the book as being weak or soft. And Marty is the one doing the identifying. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a third person book, but it frequently is positioned from Marty's point of view. Um, it's fascinating. Like when he specifically says about Wayne Howard, he doesn't seem like the limp-wristed kind of designer he was used to. Yeah, exactly. It, um, what do you think of, because to me, I feel like the authorial commentary by Dixon is that Marty isn't nearly as hard as he thinks he is, and the weak men around him aren't as soft as he's identified. Or do you think that's unfair? No, I think absolutely. I think that's exactly what Dixon wants us to feel about this character is that he's definitely not as in control as he thinks he is. And again, by kind of completely shedding his criminal past, he loses that toughness and realizes that even though he's this brilliant engineer and somebody who can get things done, he can't sustain it because he doesn't have that uh, <clears throat> that that kind of mastermind persona that he had. And he, he you know, it's just something that with a bank robbery, you know, it's like, you know, he brags to himself about how it's in and out and, you know, it's, he's in there less than 60 seconds and everything goes perfect. Yeah. But that's not a way to sustain, you know, a hotel empire or a social uh, life at all. But that's all <laughs> going to be fleeting ultimately. Yeah. And also what does it mean to just punch a drunk on the street? He's like, I had to show him I'm tough. I sucker punched a drunk guy and everyone's like, Oh shit, he's dangerous. You know, but is that actually being hard or is that just an, an expression of his weakness, of his softness? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's for, for someone like Marty and again, for a lot of Dixon's characters, the, the idea of, of strength through violence is seen as a virtue. You yeah. Know, you know, but, you know, and that's his solution to a lot of situations. Like you say, punching out a drunk on the street or you know, thinking about, you know, killing Dotty at, you know, <laughs> at one point where he, you know, and, and making that decision not to only because that would potentially screw him up further down the line, you know, if, if he killed her in that situation. But there yeah. is that, you know, uh, uh, idea of, you know, this is uh, what masculinity is, is strength through violence and, you know, ruthlessness and being able to do the things that other men can't, can't do. Yeah. And, it doesn't get these characters anywhere. It doesn't get them what they want. Yeah, it's such a shallow facade. Again, yeah. to put it back in Gatsby terms, like shallowness of facade is so much a theme of that book. Shallowness of facade is such a theme of this book as well. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 for you know for a period he can pull it off, and you know and and he can manage to kind of you know put on the mask of being this kind of the guy that he wants to be, but. But he can't pull it off forever because, you know, not only is his past there, but but his nature can't help kind of, you know, see through the, the you know, the the violence and and you know, and the whole relationship with with Karen. And and it's interesting the fact that she has so much more control at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, because she basically says, you know, I'm going to get a divorce and I'm going to marry this other guy, you know, uh, Wayne, the designer, you know, who. You know, like you said, Marty, who does seem like a catch. He seems does, like yeah. a real catch. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, he's he, yeah, he's not. He's not. It's an interesting problem. parallel because it's interesting parallel because the uh, marriage to Karen is exactly the way he's run his uh, you know his business side, where it's easy enough to win her 
yeah. and get her to marry him. But then what? That what's after that? You know, same thing with the hotel. Is you know, you you get in there, you make the deal, but then what? I mean, then then you know, how, how you do you sustain? <laughs> well, you get you uh, you buy a, you hire a bunch of kids to run it for you, and you watch them like a hawker. They will steal you blind. Yeah, that's the whole dream of it. But that's the thing, though, is, is is that for you know for Martin again for a lot of these kind of Dixon characters is that you know for going back to Gatsby with Gatsby, he does what he does for love. You know that that's that's the motivation, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, the re- oh, yeah. the Gatsby becoming Gatsby is love. You know the reason for Marty becoming you know, the guy that he is in his book isn't love. Love is an accidental thing that happens. The reason that, that he becomes what he becomes is money, but you know, money doesn't love you back. You know, there's yeah. no, you don't get anything from it, you know, so he gets the satisfaction and it's interesting that it, it's the moment where he makes a deal or the moment where he enforces his will over people are the moments where, where he seems to be most excited. Yeah. But, but on a day to day level of like, well, how do you live? Life. Yeah, when he starts enforcing his will sexually on Karen, he destroys the the marriage. Yeah, he, absolutely. He and there's, understand. And there's no going back. That's the thing. That's what's really interesting. There's no going back. She she shuts down and says, "This isn't going to happen. This isn't going to be like this." And there is nothing that you can do to change it. And that is something that just blows his mind because he's never been told before. There is nothing that you can do to change this. Yeah, and specifically that your violence has not cowed me and broken my spirit and caused me to fall in line. You know, I think that's very shocking for him as well, is that his sort of animalistic violence creates a resolve in her that he is uh, uh, completely unused to dealing with, you know, and that he doesn't know how to interpret it because she's an interesting mix. She's, she's said to be a virgin when they get married. She's an interesting mix of sort of naivete and innocence when they get married and sort of an unbreakable resolve to match his, a sort yeah. of steely resolve. From the beginning, she's presented as as shrewd a businesswoman as anybody in the book, and sort of the one who most wants to live up to the family name, this family of businessmen who the grandfather, I think it was, made his, made his money through sort of dubious means, the way Marty came up. You sort of get the sense that whatever grandpa standard had done, it, you know, might have involved robbing railroads and that sort of thing. And she sees herself as an heir to that. And that's what she sees in Marty when she first meets him, is you're a little bit of this rough character who's going to tame the old West. And I think of myself that way as well, is what Karen says, is I need a partner who's going to do that with me. But what he finds is that really, truly, he can't break her. You know, and I think that's fascinating about the book as well, uh, is that she really proves to be indomitable in the way that he's not expecting and doesn't know how to deal with. Well, another interesting angle on Karen, too, is the he brings up that her parents were killed in the boating accident. And yeah. it seems really suspicious. It seems like it's going to come back at some point. Yeah, the brother, um, the, is the parents doesn't. and the uncle, it's like a whole group of people that feels like, yeah. Like, like, wow, how convenient that those people happened to die at the exact same time. Um, so you think there, there might be some criminal past, you know, it, with her too, but it never comes up again. So it's kind of left amb- uh, ambiguous. Uh, it's interesting though that yeah, she... It seems almost like something out of, um, 
out of magnificent obsession is what I kept thinking of. It's just like <laughs> a boating accident that's very melodramatic. It's like, are they going to show up with amnesia at some point? <laughs> but Karen uh, also kind of does this thing where she starts treating the marriage like business, you know, where she kind of dips down low enough to kind of, you know, go into this guy's world to be fascinated for a little while when she realizes that it's boring and that he's actually this predictable, completely harmless little kitten of a of a weak suck that, you know, she's going <laughs> to treat the marriage like uh, like a business, right? That she's going to yeah. say, I don't want to divorce you because, you know, standing and, you know, reputation, but we're not going to be man and wife. We're not going to be in love. It's fine. We can live it we, until our, you know, until death that we part is fine, but I'm not going to have anything to do with the emotional side of this marriage anymore. So uh, I mean, she's a really fascinating character. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that by the end of the book, the two women who he's been kind of sort of, you know, playing off, not against each other, but he's been, you know, going between throughout the whole, the whole book, are both on top, you know, yeah. one who screws him up at the end. You know. Yeah. And we haven't talked as much about Dottie, but I find her to be just as good of a character. Sometimes when I was reading this book is like, I wish I were reading Dottie's book. I wish the first scene were Red Martin showed up at my hotel room and left and told me to get out of town and I didn't get out of town. You know, I wish it was her book in some ways because she's similarly not willing to be pushed around by him. She has to know she's courting danger. And she does. She's, she's a hustler too. She knows what she's gotten into. Yeah, but she's, she manages to out-hustle him because, he, you know, he, he can't change. He can't adapt and she can. Well, she does remember the gun. That is certainly true about her. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't go, oh, maybe a gun would be useful in this situation. Yeah. Well, um, Dixon can't help but have that little uh, you know, sting at the end where she leaves her purse behind after, after yeah. shooting him. That is really my only complaint about the book is it feels like it's building to a big blowout where he's gotten Karen and the interior decorator and the gambler mob boss from Tahoe and Dottie all into the same building and the FBI. And then it's only about Dottie and Marty. I felt like he's going to build to this blowout where everybody's involved in some way. And that's really my only complaint is that it's a missed opportunity to have everybody, to have it go spectacularly awry with every single plot thread. Because he gets them there without effort too. You, there's very few gears turning as yeah. far as crime writing is concerned. There's very little grind. Everybody's there naturally. It just feels like, in some ways, it's interesting to hear his history and what he comes out of, because in some ways it feels like him going, no, that's too easy. You know, like, no, that's, that's too easy. I got him just how little effort it takes him to get all of these pieces in place compared to some, some crime writers are a real slog with that and do a lot of cheating to get everybody where they need to be. I don't know why, but Ed McBain immediately popped into my head where people are always getting like last yeah. second radio calls <laughs> and showing up and it's like, oh my God, that's the only way you could get them here is he like found a piece of paper with an address written on it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but so it was interesting to me that he set it all up and then sort of let it lay. It felt like a final, it feels almost like an author statement of like, I don't have to do that. I could have, I don't have to, but I still wish he had, you know? I see, I see what you're saying, although, you know, we, we understand Karen so much the point and understand that she is completely done with him that I feel like even learning his identity and learning that he was Red Martin all along, she would be like, huh, you know, like it wouldn't even be like a big revelation for her at that point. 
Yeah. In a way, it's because it, it, because of how he's kind of built this whole hotel empire and he's built this kind of whole persona. The fact that he dies basically, you know, on a carpet because of his own stupidity and that uh, you know he's going to be seen for what he is. Yeah. It is great. It's a nice little kind of like. Well, it's a very it's a very. Um, uh, I want to avoid bad words for this. It's a cliche noir ending, but I don't want to use the word cliche. It's like a perfect noir ending. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those, it's just like, it's a quintessential. There's got to be a word that doesn't sound dismissive of it, but it's like, that's the way a noir book has to end, you know, yeah. uh, in some ways. Stephen, can I ask you a question? I was just thinking about this when I was reading the book because I found to read the book to be a very exciting experience. You obviously read a lot of off-the-beaten-path crime fiction and things like that. Sometimes I wonder, am I suffering from connoisseur syndrome, right? Where, you know, if you have a connoisseur of cheese, you're like, oh, here's a very nice Vermont cheddar, which is objectively delicious, and they're not interested. But if you're like, here's some more beer, it has a line of ash down the middle. And they're like, wow, the cheese with ash sounds amazing in it, right? That's yeah. connoisseur syndrome, where you sort of end up in a different place, maybe, than what's logical. Do you ever feel like you suffer from that when you're finding uh, these these more off the beaten path books? Um, I don't know really. I guess uh, I, I I it's weird. We were talking about the horror film festival earlier. Right? Yeah, yeah. With something like that, as a horror film fan, you're you're so used to you know watching films where you know they may be generally terrible. <laughs> one element that is fantastic. Or, yeah. I mean, or there was one scene, or there was one death, or absolutely, yeah. And, and, the curate's egg, yeah. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and you love them anyway. You love them for that, and you appreciate them because they're part of the of of, of horror. Do you know what I mean? And you don't have yeah. that same kind of thing. And I guess it's it's similar. I I guess it depends on the writing. I mean, you, you know when you're reading a book, and the writer knows what they're doing, and you know when you're reading a book, and they they are just. You know, like you described earlier, that they're just kind of having to kind of, you know, I don't know, cheat to get people where they need to be. You know, I've, re- I've read books where you get to the end and you think, ah, oh, that's okay, but uh, that's, you know, the, the reveal was really unbelievable about how they got there. You know, yeah. With like, you know, detective fiction. You know, with yeah. something like Dixon, I just feel like the, the writing is really interesting. And because they're not mysteries and they're not detective stories, you know, they, they're, you know, they're, they're about people and that, you know, he doesn't, work that hard or have to work that hard to kind of get these kind of plot machinations in there you know the 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 things that happen seem to happen quite naturally and they're really well seeded like you know so the whole thing with with dotty is well seeded you you can almost spot it from the beginning like oh he's made a fuck up there you know that's going to come back to haunt him and it does he's like jean gaban with jean moreau he needed it in uh, Touche Pile Grisby. He's got to yeah. put her down right at the beginning. Yeah. Doesn't do that. But that doesn't, <laughs> even though you know that that's probably going to come back and bite him in the arse, it, 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 it doesn't matter because it's, it, it's the journey. And I think with Dixon, I really enjoy his writing. I find, find myself always kind of pulled into his books because I think there is, yeah, obviously he's, you know, like I said, he didn't see himself as a crime writer. And to an extent, I think he saw himself as somebody who was, uh, you know, doing these books for for the money and would probably rather be doing more literary books, which he went, you know, and, and again, talking to his, his daughter, she said that actually after the gold medal, 
contract ended, he he pretty much had kind of writer's block for for you know for a while, and and he finished like uh, I think four more books, and then you know didn't write anything for about twenty years. Um, so I think it really you know he wrote himself out writing these books because he wrote them at speed, and he kind of you know he really wanted to get them out there, but. But even despite that, and even despite the fact that he's writing, you know, and there are these kind of pulp elements, you know, they are still, for the time and for the genre and for, you know, what they are, are really interesting novels about something. Absolutely. Um, What would you say is the next uh, great Dixon book to read after this one? Cry Blood sounds really good to me. Cry Blood's interesting, but it's it, it's a it, out of the ones that I've read, it's a bit of an anomaly, and it's it's actually based on a real case, apparently. Um, but I would say that the one that I that, that I love is something for nothing, which again has got a similar kind of setup, but it's got you know some fantastic scenes in it, and it's uh, it's another kind of like you know rich uh, poor good looking guy who kind of hooks into somebody rich, but it's 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 a different kind of setup. I definitely kind of recommend that. And there's another one I've just read, uh, actually called uh, Oh to Hell Together is good as well, and that's a great pulp title. Yeah. Hell together. That's that that that's another one that's worth buying. But I mean, you you may find it easier to kind of pick them up in the states. So it, it's quite hard to kind of get them over here. So I've had to kind of trap them down from from you know all over the place to try and get hold of them. Yeah, and if you don't want to buy the actual copies, a bunch of them are available on Kindle through Amazon. Yeah, I saw if that. You're interested yeah. in checking them out, so you don't have to make the full commitment until you sample them. John, should we move on to the to the desserts? Uh, yeah, let's, uh, Stephen. Unless you have anything else to say about Deep Is the Pit, it, it's uh, you know it, it's a great book. I mean, like I say, I, I'm really happy to be talking about um, Harry Werner Dixon because I think he's great, and it was fantastic to talk to uh, his daughter about him. And uh, you know, and uh, he had a great recommendation and great to get some information from you on him because he really is an unknown. I haven't even talked about the fact that he had an earlier career as an eccentric dancer in Baltimore. <laughs> Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah, him and his, him and his uh, sister um, Dorothy had an act where they were eccentric dancers uh, and worked in vaudeville. And there's even if there's a film called uh, Blondie of the Follies from 1932, starring Marion Davies, uh, where you can see the two of them in the background doing some of their doing some, one of the scenes doing their kind of eccentric dancing, which is basically very kind of highly energetic kind of. He's throwing her around his neck and. You know, she's bouncing off the floor and jumping at him. It's it, it it's great stuff. But that that was his prior career. Uh, Interesting, a real uh, Fred and Fred and Adele stare there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but no, I'd I'd love to you know for, for people to discover Dixon if they can. I think he's great. Great. So the uh, to, just to dive into it, just to keep things moving along at a brick press pace, the dessert selection to take you out of this, John. I will go first to get the idiotic one out of the way. I am, <laughs> and then you can go second, and we'll let Stephen finish up for it. Uh, I am going to tell you to see the finest film I've ever seen about buying and not even buying, about restoring a derelict hotel and trying to return it to its former glory and running into deathly troubles. It's See No Evil by Gregory Dark, starring the wrestler Kane. Uh, surely the best movie about trying to take care of a derelict hotel and being killed by a hulking, creepy peeping professional wrestler with a meat hook. Uh, if you ever want to see a dog pee into a corpse's empty eye sockets, this is oh, the movie for you. 
This is an absolute classic of, uh, of, of any kind. I don't even need to specify what genre it belongs to. Uh, is that what the protagonists are up to in that movie? You're storing a hotel? Yeah, they're like teen, <laughs> they're teens who have been sent to a hotel to clean it out so it can be turned into a homeless shelter. So they're, okay. they're like troubled teens who part of their, uh, their settlement whatever it is they like I'm, i can't find the right word i oh, like community service community service jesus <laughs> christ that is the word as part of their i'm going to drop all that it's about a group of derelict teens john delinquents uh sent to do community service and part of their community service is cleaning up this hotel so it can be turned into a homeless shelter and kane is living in this hotel ready to murder ready to murder um Okay, and so they're not a positive message rap group or anything like that. No, it's a real, it's a real great trash fest. And Gregory Dark, who directed it, is most famous for being uh, part of that '80s group of like the weird Gonzo porno directors. And for some reason, the WWE tapped him to direct this mainstream horror film. Uh, and he was like a famous like sleaze bag. Like he made like New Wave hookers and things like that. He was that kind of director. Uh, and so it's a, it's quite something. It was a dumb choice. <laughs> but, uh, John, let's move on to yours. There are I, I enjoyed the choice. My Mine's a weird choice. Uh, I'm going with Burn, Aquila Ponte Cuervo film from yeah. 1969. Um, in that one, Marlon Brando plays a freebooter who goes on Goes, who organizes a revolution of slaves to topple an existing government of an island uh, to establish a puppet regime to benefit British sugar interests. And then 10 years later, he returns to crush the same rebellion that he started. Uh, there aren't too many parallels between this and Deep as a Pit, although tonally I felt there were some interesting character similarities between Brando's uh, freebooter and Marty Lee, someone who sort of thinks he's an expert at organizing, you know, he sets to do something and he does it perfectly. He understands people and how to manipulate them exactly right. But he's someone without a conscience. He's someone who doesn't have an emotional investment in what he's doing, only skill, you know, only, he only knows. And, and through criminal ventures, I should say too, through assassinations and all sorts of back, you know, uh, backstabbing sort of ways, knows how to make this thing happen. Uh, but he's not someone who actually is passionate about it. He's just is good at what he does and sets to it. Um, so totally, I kind of found these characters to be a little bit interesting. And that's why I would recommend, I recommend this film by itself, but yeah. you know, bringing it up just in context of this book yeah. as kind of an interesting comparison. Yeah. It's Ponte Corvo's other masterpiece with uh, battle of Algiers. And it's also, it was filmed uh, in and around Cartagena, Colombia, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth in my estimation. And so it's a great movie to just look at as well. And that's a city, gorgeous. And a city that's really underfilmed, considering how, how uh, beautiful it is. St- standing in for the fictional Island of Quemada. Kemada. Oh, it doesn't. It, didn't that movie have a title? It went under the title like Kemada Best Mort or yeah. something like that as well. Yeah, I've seen it under that title. Yeah. Well, I just made that up, but it was some shit like that. No, no, it's Kemada. under Kemada, I think is all it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not to get too far off track, Stephen, do you have a recommendation that's more in the correct vein than either me or John? 
Sure. Uh, well, my dessert is going to be another book. Uh, I I was kind of going along the you know with all the books this this idea of kind of wealth and class and like, yeah. Theme. So it's a book called Fatal, as in Femme Fatale, uh, by Jean Patrick Manchot, uh, who was a French crime writer of the 1970s and 80s. And he he was interesting because he was a very left wing activist in the in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and kind of as a kind of revolutionary communist kind of ilk, and then uh, was a screenwriter and a novelist, and then did this kind of run of of, of crime novels, very kind of um, influenced by sort of film noir and hardboiled novels in the in seventies and eighties. Uh, and this one, Fatal, is again it's quite a short novel; it's only about hundred or so pages, um, but it's about this. Uh, woman who uh, is essentially a, an assassin and at the beginning we you know we see her kill a guy in the woods uh and then leave that place and travel on a train to this town where she changes her looks and changes her identity and comes up with a new name amy robert um and then moves into this town and her sort of uh raison is basically to go into these into these places and to um, scope them out to see you know who the rich people are and how she can basically make some money out of them by trying to find out who who has a beef with who in the town and who might want to hire a killer to kill somebody else in the town um so it's this great very fast-paced uh kind of noiry deliberately not pastiche but you know deliberately kind of noiry kind of story of this of this woman going to this town um, and then she meets another guy and her motivations change and it ends up with a fantastic uh, shootout at the dots. Um, but it has got this kind of undercurrent of, of, of this woman basically, you know, taking on the bourgeoisie in, in this town and, and kind of giving them what for. So uh, yeah. he's, a really, he's a really interesting writer. Um, he, he wrote, uh, there's a film that came out a couple of years ago with Sean Penn called The Gunman, and that's based on one of his, uh, one of his books. Um, yeah. There was another film called, which I don't know if you've seen, called Let the Corpses Tan. Yes. Yes. And I'm also, I'm familiar with them. He wrote um, Nada. And I believe, I don't think he wrote the script, but the Claude Chabrol movie. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's yeah, based yeah. on one of his. And that's what I'm most familiar with from him from, which is interesting because that's one of Chabrol's most uh, overtly left-wing political films um, as well. So that's, that's... Uh, I'm very surprised to hear he wrote The Gunman, but I, I knew he had written Let the Corpses Tan as well, or that it was based on his work yeah. uh, for him. Which is a great film. I, don't, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a yes. film and a, and a mad film. As well. that's, that's a great selection. I think that's a very interesting in, interesting comparison for this, and I will be I will be sure to check it out. And Fatal is the one I, I should read. Yeah, yeah, that, it, it, yeah, it's great. It's and it's very quick read. It's been, uh, I think, Serpent's Tale put it out. I think that's uh, in a new edition a couple of years ago. Or a year older. Well, John, I'm sure you have an outro and everything. But before we get into it, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show, Stephen, and just saying how much I enjoyed uh, being directed to this book and having an excuse to read it, and then really enjoyed talking to you today. I, I'm. You are welcome back anytime you want on the show. I just, I really uh, enjoyed this experience is what I'll say. No, it's been, it's been great fun for me too. I've really enjoyed it too. And yeah, I'd love to come back sometime and I've I've got plenty of books. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, but it'd be great to find, you know, if I, if I find someone who I think, well, that, you know, that's somebody nobody knows about. I think, you know. <laughs> oh, we talk about, we talk plenty about known stuff. We're not just, oh, no, no, we're not no, just no, strictly no. great things. From my point of view, I, I, I feel like a kind of like a, a duty to kind of like, if I find somebody, it's always like a, a personal thing. Like just, You can come spread the gospel when you're here. Exactly. You got more good news. Come evangelize yeah. for whoever you'd like. <laughs> That'd be great. Hey, we'd love to have you back on, Stephen. Uh, maybe you do a holding book or, or anything that you had in mind. Uh, be uh, great. You'd be your pick. You put us in good hands with this one. This is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. Thank you very much for our listeners, to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we're going to be back next month with uh, The Religion by Nicholas Condi, uh, which is also published under the name of the movie that, was, uh, that came from it, The Believers. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that so if, feel free to grab a copy of that uh, read it and follow along with us uh, thank you again to Stephen thank you Chris uh, everybody have a great time thank you John and thank you once again Stephen okay, thank you guys bye